yes, you want to do that, but you also, at some point, you also want to have the long view, right? And you want to think about like, is what I'm doing something when I sit back from this, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, am I going to think like, okay, wow, that was really worthwhile. I'm really proud of what I did. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Artists of Data Science. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at The Artists of Data Science and on Twitter at Artists of Data. I'll be sharing awesome tips and wisdom on data science as well as clips from the show. Join the free open mastermind Slack channel by going to bit.ly.com forward slash Artists of Data Science, where I'll keep you updated on bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for the community. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahorta. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Our guest today is a professor who studies complex systems, collective intelligence, teams, and political and economic institutions. He's earned a bachelor's in mathematics from the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, a master's in mathematics from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, a master's in managerial economics from the Kellogg Graduate School of Management at Northwestern University, and a PhD in managerial economics and decision sciences, also from the Kellogg Graduate School of Management. He's known for his research on and modeling of diversity and complexity in the social sciences with a particular interest in the roles that diversity plays in complex systems, answering questions such as, how does diversity arise? Does diversity make a system more productive? How does diversity impact robustness? And does it make a system prone to large events? In addition to nearly 100 published papers, he's also taped three video courses, raised two sons, five dogs, and nine cattle, all while writing five books, including The Model Thinker, which stresses the application of ensembles of models to make sense of complex phenomenon, the difference which demonstrates the benefits and cost of diversity in social context, and the diversity bonus, which follows up and expands on the themes in the difference. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, the John Seeley Brown Distinguished Professor of Complexity, Social Science, and Management at the University of Michigan, Dr. Scott E. Page. Dr. Page, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really, really appreciate you coming on to the show. Oh, fantastic to be here. Totally great to be here. So talk to us a bit about how you first got interested in mathematics. What drew you to the field of modeling in general and specifically game theory and complexity? So I think like a lot of people, you sort of follow your strengths and interests, right? So I was very much interested in mathematics as an undergraduate, kind of debated between majoring in English or math because I just kind of liked ideas. Started out in graduate school in mathematics, getting a, you know, I set out to get a PhD in mathematics at Wisconsin. And at that time, game theory was just getting started. And I started taking some classes in the economics department. I had and taken much econ as an undergraduate. And the professors there, including like Ken Rogoff, who later became the chief economist of the World Bank, they were like, wow, you should be an economist and you should do this game theory stuff. It's really cool. So then I looked at transferring and I looked at Princeton, Stanford, and Northwestern. And in the end, Northwestern just had very small programs. This guy, Roger Meyerson, who I ended up working with, who won the Nobel, ended up winning the Nobel Prize in game theory. And it was just like, here's these like really smart people who like applying math to social problems. And I thought, this is really cool because it's like my one skill 
people, mathematics, and things I care about, the world, and I can kind of link those two. So it was just great. So what were some of the challenges you faced while you're paving your own lane in the field? So I think the real challenge that I faced personally, so I was trained in this kind of mathematical economics mechanism design stuff. I was starting to dabble in complexity a little bit, went on the job market. And the way economics works is these top schools rank their students coming out. So they say, they'll say, Harpreet is number one, Scott is number two, Jessica is number three. And from what I know, Northwestern had me ranked number one, and I only got like 10 interviews. And the person ranked number two got like 40 interviews because I was doing strange stuff. And the schools that were looking at me were the very best schools, you know, Stanford, Caltech, those sort of things. And then you know, one school outside of that, and I was scared to death. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm either going to get a great job or no job. And I ended up getting jobs at Caltech and Stanford. And when I went to Caltech, I just decided that what well, didn't I realized pretty quickly, they're all smarter than me. You know, there's 800 undergrads, they're smarter than me. There's a thousand grad students, they're smarter than me. And there's 250 faculty, they're smarter than me. We went to the postdocs because they're like by far the smartest. And I thought it's false humility. I and mean, I just thought like, wow, these people are just really into what they're doing. They're really teched up. And that I needed to find what I was going to doing. And so I sort of then moved into this area of complexity, which is a very different metaphor. I mean, like, so economics as taught, especially at that time, was about equilibrium, right? Like you know, supply and demand, solve for equilibrium market prices, right? People are probably like sitting back in horror listening. And I thought like, wow, no, I agree with these people. The economy is complex. It's dynamic. It's constantly changing. And so the hard part, I think for me was in some sense, almost like giving up a guaranteed super successful career as like a game theorist, not as like as a game theorist at Caltech, where I just could have written 150 papers over 30 years and drank a lot of really good red wine or something and choosing to go this sort of wild complexity modeling route. That's pretty interesting. So it sounds like you kind of had a moment of like imposter syndrome when you got to Caltech. Is that true or is that? No, it just was more the case that like, I'm from Yankee Springs, Michigan, right? So I'm like from a place without even a post office. When I was like, sometimes in college, we got a house number before that we were like route three. One time I met the poet Wendell Berry and then I needed to use a quote from him. And I wrote him and he was like route three, Port Clinton, Kentucky, right? And so I was like, Wendell, this is so cool. I was like route three, Middleville, Michigan. So it was more the case that I just felt like, wow, you know, these people have so much passion for what they're doing and they're so driven and they're so smart. And for me, it was like to play at that level and which isn't so much about competition, but it's about like playing at that level means like you're really engaged in important problems in the world and making a difference in the world in some way. You've really got to care. It can't be about you. Know, so early on, a friend of mine, my RA, you know, my like, resident director in the dorm, who ended up becoming Obama's chief policy advisor, Cis Munoz. She said, you know, you have to separate achievement from purpose, right? And that so often people go to college, you're like 18 and she's like giving me this wise advice as a 20 year old or something. But you know, it's like, you've got to separate out just like trying to achieve, 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 get these grades, get this job, get this money and really think deeper what your purpose is. And I think I had to see you come to Jesus moment at that point. Like the only way I'll play at this level is I really think it's what I'm doing is important. Wow. That's got a little bit of chills going on here. You got to separate achievement from purpose. I like that a lot. So you've kind of found your purpose then in, in just complexity and, and that kind of just snowballed into all the work and all the books that you've when you think about, this relates to, I think, a lot of stuff going on in data science and machine learning at the moment. But when you think of modeling as purely simplifying, and if you think about ability as kind of like a one-dimensional thing, and especially if like you're hanging out in kind of like Caltech land, there's some sense of like you can like order people by like, you know, who's smarter than who. One of the things you realize when you start studying incredibly complex systems, like in an ecosystem, there's no ranking of species, right? So you realize that like robust, productive, innovative ecosystems and innovative economies, cities, right? Great firms, great universities 
universities, their success lies in this really sort of constructed diversity. It has all this, these synergies and independence and those sort of things. And so I realized like, wow, you know, this is just like so cool that like you have to embrace the dimensionality of things, right? And the richness of things. So one definition, there's sort of two classes of definitions of complexity. One is what I call BOAR, B-O-A-R. And this goes to the idea of Murray Gelman, which is that it's between ordered and random. If something's ordered, it's not complex. If it's random, it's not complex. It's sort of between those two. So between ordered and random, like wild boar, right? You have that complex. There's another class of definitions, which I call deep, which is difficult to explain, engineer, evolve, or predict. So explain gets to sort of like the notion from, again, like with entropy, like what's the minimal description length of something, right? So if I explain a water molecule pretty quick, if I explain middle school, we're going to be here a long time, right? I always give middle school and international relations as like the classic complex system. And then, um, but then difficult to evolve. So you think about like evolving the eye probably took it, you know, more than an afternoon, right? But other things might have evolved relatively quickly. Difficult to engineer, similar sort of thing, like a Saturn V rocket had 118,000 components or whatever, right? That wasn't done on a napkin at a Chi-Chi's at some point in 1975 in Bethesda, right? It took a lot of people. And then difficult to predict. And this is where the machine learning stuff comes in. By definition, if something's kind of between ordered and random, it's going to be difficult to predict. And there's all these sort of interconnections between like depth of prediction, like, you know, how deep you have to go to explain this thing. And a puzzle that no one's really, Jim Crutchfield, I think, has come close, and Cosmos Shalizi's come close, and Rice at Isuza at uh, UC Davis has got some ideas in this, I think. But how do you, when you see the kind of something that's difficult to explain, evolve, engineer, predict, it's hard to tell what part of that is random and what part of that is complex. So separating the random from the complex is really hard. And so that's where some of the stuff, not some of the stuff, but a lot of the things that really interest me intersect with machine learning. Simple example, like a friend of mine wrote this great book called The Success Equation. Like, how do you separate skill from luck? Similar question, right? You look at successful people. Were they lucky? Were they skillful? Is there a synergy? Can you pull them apart, right? And in, in a system, like if we're out there running the four by 100 meter relay, or if we're lined up for 100 meter dash, or we're shot putting or something like that, pretty much skill, right? The wins may be luck, but you know, it's pretty much skill. But in a really complex system, it gets hard to ferret that out. Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. So I want to pick your brain a little bit on where you think machine learning is going to be headed, specifically kind of the biggest positive impact that it's going to have on society in the next two to five years. Uh, what do you think it will be? I think there's a real chance in the very short term that machine learning could help in tremendous kind of some expected, some unexpected ways with COVID, right? With, you know, contact tracing, with understanding how the disease spreads, with I think machine learning actually is helping with construction of the vaccines, right? There's so many potential molecules that could work. There's these RNA techniques. It's fascinating because it's, you know, while there are bench scientists on the ground trying to solve these things, a lot of bench scientists are in collaboration with data scientists. So I think, you know, this would have been a really funny thing to say 10 years ago because I think we thought of machine learning as pretty far afield from creation of vaccines and preventing the social spread of a disease. But now I think some of that stuff can work. This is going to seem off point, but it's 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 provocative. The NBA gave all their players, they think they're called aura rings. Did you read this? Right? 
And the only people I knew who had aura rings were older people from Silicon Valley, you know, who all like who count every step and like, you know, turn to this sort of like, you know, self-monitoring thing, right? And all of a sudden and I'm like, whoa, the NBA is getting it. But the thing is, imagine like if you gave everyone patches or aura rings where you could then monitor everything, like you, you need a temperature every person every time, you might very quickly be able to shut something like this down I mean, or really prevent the spread in an interesting way. When you bracket that though, given that this has all happened at the same time as you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has really sort of risen up because of the George Floyd incident. Incident may not be the right word there, but you know, I was working with someone who was working with the governor of Ohio on this, like this is not necessarily a great time to do that level of tracing in some communities, right? Like <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people right now saying, oh yeah, I'd love to give the government every person I'm hanging out with. You know, COVID's one place where it's going to be a huge effect. I think it's also going to really have incredible experiment in work and education at the moment where some stuff is being done online. I think we're going to get a lot of data from that that's going to help us figure out how to just reorganize society in some very broad ways to make things better, I hope. You know, I think we're going to go back and realize there's a lot of natural experiments that happened that we weren't aware of, and we'll figure some stuff out. And what do you think will be scariest applications of machine learning in the next two to five years? Machine learning, by definition, reduces the dimensionality of a high-dimensional complex world to make it understandable. You know, it predicts things. So this is going to happen, that sort of stuff. And so there's a thing that worries me from machine learning, especially in Facebook, Amazon land, is that it's, I'm going to say this carefully and in the right way, but the extent to which it impinges on free will. And there's a good side to it in that like, I may think I have free will in terms of like when I decide like which restaurant I want to go to, what I want to buy, what movie I want to watch, like what I do with my time. I may mean, think, oh, I have free will. The reality is I only choose from the things I see. And the things I see are somewhat random and idiosyncratic or, you know, serendipitous or, you know, whatever, right? Or I look to people I know and follow from them. When really sophisticated machine learning algorithms are putting each one of us in buckets, right? We're going to break American society, Canadian society, Armenian society, or, you know, the citizens of Sierra Leone into five categories. And then each of those five categories, the same advertisements, the same things. You really reduce the dimensionality of the lives that people have. And suddenly we're being funneled, right, in ways that we may not expect. Now, the, the reality is, prior to the internet, prior to machine learning, Coke was the real thing. I was having it my way. I mean, you know, Burger King, whatever. Right? Uh, we were being steered as well. There's just some sense that that steering is far more sophisticated. So do you think that it's kind of we are putting ourselves into echo chambers in a sense because all of our movements online, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, whatever, it's kind of tracked. Because of that, they try recommend us things that they think that we might like and kind of build ourselves into this kind of box? Is that? Yeah. So, you know, so it turns out just for strange reasons, Michigan has, we can get our mail through Gmail or through the University of Michigan. So I have two accounts, Scotty Page at, you know, Gmail and Scott S. Page at UMich or something, right? And for whatever reason, on different computers, I sign in as different ones at different times. And it's pretty clear, like the internet sees me as two different people. <laughs> at one point, Scott Page or S. Page, he had to buy like four ceiling fans because we like, you know, do renovations. And like that poor guy, my other half is still getting ceiling fan ads like, you know, five years later and Scotty Page never sees any ceiling fan. Just, you probably don't see any ceiling fan ads, Dave. It's not like, but like buy four in a week and they think like, that's your thing. I think S Page, because that's the one I log in at the university and, you know, trained as an economist, I get much more Fox News. Like I can tell if I'm logged in, I bet I'm, whether I'm getting like Fox News, Wall Street Journal leads or whether I'm getting CNN, MSNBC, New York Times lead, right? Which is fascinating to me. So how important is the human in the loop? And can you talk about the difference between big data and thick data? 
Yeah. So this is a great fascinating thing. When you raised this question, I thought like, wow, this is really where the action is. So what you've got is when you look at the big data, you've got high dimensional flow of streams of data. And it's the things that we can scrape and see and get. For decades, anthropologists and sociologists have talked about thick descriptions. It goes back to Clifford Geertz. You know, you really get in the lives and minds of people and you see the things that maybe you couldn't see from just sort of scraping things empirically. Yuan Wenang, one of my colleagues at Michigan, wrote a piece for IBM. If you just type in like thick data IBM, you'll find this great report where you sort of say, you know, looking just at the big data, you would have drawn inference A, but looking at the thick data, you would draw inference B, right? You'd sort of see the world in a different way. So you might think that like we have some intervention and have this result and this is why people are doing it. Then when you talk to people, you might find out that the reason they were acting the way they were is they didn't trust the police or something, right? It's a completely different reason. And so if you, and if you think of, take IDEO, for example, right? The notion of user-centric design. How does that work? Well, you kind of imagine, I've never been to one of these, but I've been to like two or three like IDEO design sessions. And so it usually sort of construct five prototypical users. And then you think, okay, how would they think about popcorn machine? What is its meaning for them? Why does it emotionally connect to them? And you design the machine for those five people. So it's very thick, very interrogative. What's fascinating to me about that is that like, you can imagine big data is kind of wide and horizontal, thick data is narrow and deep. And between them, you get a sort of more robust, richer understanding standings, right? And you're more less likely to make a mistake. The thing that I find sort of fascinating is within each camp, there's not that much acceptance that they could be wrong. The big data people tend to say, oh, without us, big data would be a mistake. But without them, big data would, even without big data, they'd be prone to just saying idiosyncratic things. So I think the combination is super powerful. So thick data, an example of that would be something that you see with like longitudinal type of studies. Would that be good? No, so it'd be literally like somebody says to me, I want to understand who drinks craft beers and who drinks mass produced beers. What are the reasons? And I basically have pay a lot of money from Kroger and Ralph's, Walmart, whatever, right? And all these places. And I've got tons of tons of data. And I based on every demographic zip code kind of thing you can possibly imagine why someone buys each kind of beer. And I give you some sort of, these are the predictors. And I and I break it. Maybe even I do some sort of clustering algorithm and I say there are 17 types of consumers and these are the probabilities of each one by September. What thick description would do is you'd go out and actually interview 30 people at length. So I've done stuff with both SAP Miller at the time and then ABI. One of the former CEOs of one of those companies would say is when you're 20, 21 years old or something and you go to the bar for the first time, there's this moment of truth where someone says, what are you going to have? And beer is, you know, I'm not that much of a beer drinker, but beer is a big part of a lot of cultures. There's a real sense of identity wrapped in what a beer is, when you drink beer and how you drink beer and what kind of beer you drink and how that defines you. And that's not going to get captured in the big data. So you could sit down and literally talk to someone for half an hour. It's like, you know, where do you drink beer? Why do you drink beer? What kind of beer do you drink? You know, and you might find all sorts of things. But it's funny because like when I moved to California, I was drinking Anchor Steam Ale or something. I'm like, oh, this is so good. Why didn't I drink this? And then I was back in Michigan and you live in Canada. Like the summers here are hot and humid, right? There's no humidity in LA, as you know. And I just moved back to Michigan as a part and there was an anchor steam ale and I picked it up and took a sip and I'm like, I'm drinking motor oil. <laughs> you know, like, get me a Strohs. Now I understand why there's this like watered down lager Pilsner beer because it's perfect for the summertime, right? And so, you know, the same is true for like cars, especially. There's this, emo- you know, you can break it down hedonically on firm after and product attributes and personal attributes, but there's this emotional connection. And so you may find like, if you say, why did you buy a Ford? Somebody will talk about their grandpa's Mustang and applying minute wax 
in circles like the karate kid on top of that thing, right? And almost come to tears and you're like, yeah, Ford buyer. I mean, it has nothing to do with the demographics, right? Completely driven by an emotional experience. So the thick description is really narrative form. But one quick thing on this, one of the amazing things now is like machine semantic analysis, right? You can turn these narratives into big data. So as practitioners of data science and machine learning, what do you think will be some of our biggest areas of concern? Yeah, obviously the the ethical stuff and the discrimination stuff is right now super central, right? I mean, just because I think that the implicit bias, if you're learning from a biased world, you know, your algorithms are going to be biased, right? In some sense, I think that that's going to be a big issue. I think there are going to be places where machine learning gets up on value judgments. And when you think about like, there's a lot of, unfortunately, triage decisions being made right now in the case of COVID. Like, you know, so who you treat, you know, a lot about actuarial science, being the, in, speaking to actuaries and people in the insurance industry, you know, right now, a lot of decisions on, you know, who gets what coverage or what happens is kind of, in some sense, made at a personal level by a doctor or something like that. Same thing's true with, you know, sentencings and crime and stuff like that is that as the evidence pours in, machine learning is kind of less biased and is more fair. But when it starts intersecting with values, I think this big question of are people going to trust over time, that'll become less of an issue. But right now you've got a generation of people my age or older who, you know, watched a space odyssey and they remember Hal taken over, right? You know, they don't trust it. I think, so I think those are big issues. I also think another real big issue is going to be the potential wiping out of professions. I think some jobs kind of, there's nothing they can do. They just kind of slowly fade away. But like take something like radiology. Radiologists make a lot of money. It's a powerful group of people. Machine learning is probably already better and soon will be a lot better. Right now, they're talking about sort of an intelligent system, system solution where you've got radiologists plus machine learning and the sort of ideas that the radiologists are giving sort of thick data there with their years of experience, but reality is they probably aren't adding a lot. But, you know, I think one of the real challenges, it's a great book, Dorona Samoglu and Jim Rob- James Robinson on sort of the rise and fall of nations and in why nations fail. And one of the things that they talk about is that one reason why nations fail is that, you know, you don't allow any technology to go through. So let me give an example. Craigslist, right, essentially wiped out the newspaper industry, wiped out hundreds of thousands of jobs. They had 15 employees, right? So one of the paradoxical things about machine learning is, is that if there's a breakthrough that wipes out an entire profession, truck drivers, let's say, cashiers, let's say, right? That's going to come up against a political process. And as we move towards this kind of vision of the future that you have, what do you think will separate the great data scientists from the rest of them? Like, like Hinton was like up in Canada, his stuff wasn't working, a couple of friends who were working in replicant dynamics sort of stuff, right? And all of a sudden, like, boom, once the data sets got bigger, techniques that didn't work as well suddenly worked a lot better, right? So there were things, you know, random forests that were like carrying the day and then they're not carrying the day. So I think one of the things that's going to, I'm going to give two sort of contradictory pieces of advice based on um, what I've seen from like 30 years in academia. So one is some people are going to be successful who really go deep and really know their one thing well and just have a just innate curiosity in a particular thing. Like I'm just interested in adaptive learning or I'm really interested in dimensional reduction and they are just consumed by a passion for that topic and they're the expert in it. And it so turns out that the thing may happen, we just didn't really pay off. Second group, I think that'll be really successful are those that have the capacity to move into new areas and take insights from other areas. You know, take this sort of notion of like boosting where just simple bagging, which theoretically should have worked pretty well, taking different samples kind of worked for random forest. But when you boosted and you selectively chose predictors that worked when the other ones didn't work, that was just a really good idea. And there's a deeper idea there in some sense that I try and get out in my model thinking book, which is the notion of sort of orthogonality of perspectives, right? Is there a way that I can see the world? Like my value add comes from like sort of not 
necessarily being smarter than everyone else or anybody's value, but sort of like seeing the world in some way that's sort of fogging all the other people so that my signal value is high. And so I think that's in some sense the idea of boosting. And so what you could think about then is, could I, if I'm sort of widely read, large capacity, generally interested, sort of take ideas from one class of algorithms and bring them to some other class of algorithms? The other thing I think that's going to always matters in science and societies, focusing on the really big stuff. I got in some heated arguments would be too strong words, but I spent a number of years on our college executive committee who gets promoted. And in literature and in history, there in some sense aren't value judgments about importance. So if I'm studying, if I write a biography of Martin Luther King, or I write a biography of Queen Elizabeth or something, that's not considered any more important than if I wrote a biography of like an arbitrary farmer in Kentucky in 1970, if I do it well, because it's about the craft. But I would, would try to convince my colleagues who are from the humanities that if I'm in, you know, epidemiology or if I'm in biology or chemistry or something and I'm working on a cure for brain cancer, that's more important than somebody working on toenail fungus. Or if I'm an economist and I'm working on the airline industry or the energy industry, that's more important than canned beets. And this became the Scott Page canned beet argument <laughs> yeah. rather than going to Simpson. <laughs> They'd be like, Scott, don't talk about the canned beets again. But I think that there is a canned beets argument here for data science. You could do cutting edge stuff, but it could be applied to something that how much it impacts people's life, how important it is, it doesn't matter as much. But the, the challenge is sometimes that's where the good data is, right? And so sometimes you could cut your teeth on something that's not that irrelevant. Part of the reason I bring up canned beets is a good friend of mine like studied the canned food industry, which is kind of not exactly the most exciting thing, got really good at that. And then from that, probably that in an incredibly successful career understanding consumer behavior. It's pretty interesting. So I want to jump into some topics you talk about in your book, The Model yeah. Thinker. Let's start at the very top. What is a model and why must they be simple. So with the model, what you do is you start with a set of like set of assumptions or primitives, and then you you make a set of assumptions about how they interact, what rules they follow, and then you think through the logic of that model. Right. Sometimes a model can be as simple as a mathematical equation, like force equals mass times acceleration, or a model can be an incredibly sophisticated model of like every car in LA driving on the highway. When you think about why models in some sense have to be simple, it depends, right? And so it used to be models had to be simple because they were written down on pencil and paper and they were mathematical. So that was just a binding constraint. Now that you can sort of write down models in computer programs, they can get more complicated, they get more complex, they can have more moving parts. Some of the main reasons to write models is to reason through things, right, and to understand how things work. If there's something called the Borges map problem, where he talks about this country, this country having map makers and really liking maps, and eventually they start making more and more elaborate maps, and eventually they make a map the size of the country itself. But the farmers don't like it because they spread it out and the plants don't grow. So they just use the country as a map of itself. And, it's, and the title of this essay is called On Exactitude in Science. So the point that Borges is making, which is the point that models make, that I sort of make in the models book, is that, yeah, if you made the model as complicated as the world, the model wouldn't have any value. One of the main uses of models is just kind of as crutches for our thinking. And so therefore, they have to be simpler. So you also cover three classes of models in your book. Can you describe yeah. those classes for us? Yeah, I mean, so essentially, I guess I think, you know, models can be, people can write models that are just kind of like very simplistic mathematical models models that are super clean, right, to get, try to get a basic point apart. And then people can try and write models that are almost close to reality, that are supposed to represent reality. And then people can write models that have nothing to do with reality in any way, that are just trying to help us think through the world, where it's just play. And some of the best modelers in the world don't feel as though they've ever been constrained to reality. It's not even something they cared about, that they just wanted to use models as a way to kind of understand the nature of logic and causality interactions itself. So you also talk about seven uses of models. Models. Yeah. And you have an acronym, which I really right. love, the red cape. 
Yeah, the superwoman model. No, so to reason, to explain, right, to design, to communicate, to take actions, to predict, and to explore. Now, to pull back on those, like when you're trained, like when I was trained in school, it's kind of like, oh, you use models to explain empirical phenomena. That's kind of it, right? And then you realize, like, well, in policy circles, people use models to take actions. Like before the Federal Reserve does anything, they take actions. Then you realize, whoa, traffic engineers, all these other people use models to design things all the time. Architects use models to design. And then when you started studying game theory, you realize like people use models just to learn how to reason, right? To think through things. And then suddenly, when I went through college in the 1980s, there were quite a few models. In the 60s, there weren't that many. Now, like almost every discipline has models. And it's because models are spectacular communicating things, right? They're just absolutely spectacular at reading these across. And then the last use gets back to the thing we talked about before, is just as exploratory tools, right? Just as a way to, there's a famous model by John Connolly, who just passed away, the game of life, which is just this like really funky, iterative, complex systems model that runs on a checkerboard. Nothing to do with anything, but it's incredible, right? And so the reason that I, I kind of lead the book with this red cape thing, because I think that there's so much pragmatism right now that we write models to explain empirical phenomena. But one of the things with people we're not, you know, when I give talks on this, I have uh, this thing where I show three carbon atoms, carbon atom one, carbon atom two, carbon atom, they're all the same. And then I show three Fred Adams. I have a friend, Fred Adams. There's a Fred Adams who's a jazz trumpeter and there's a Fred Adams who's a Mormon in the Mormon church. All very different. Like my friend's a physicist. And people are going to continue to change and be different and all that sort of stuff. So empirical results and machine learning and whatever about the world of people, that's like, it's a newspaper. It's going to change. And so there's a real advantage to having these models to think about designing and understanding understanding and predicting and that sort of stuff, as opposed to just like, oh, look, I can explain this. Because I'm not done. If I explain why people vote this time, I haven't explained how people voted next time. And so what I might want to do then instead is look at all the reasons why people have voted and think about how do I design a system that's really going to work well, given this kind of time series of reasons that I see. You also talk about this idea of the wisdom hierarchy, which I found really insightful, uh, especially, you know, I've been in various quantitative roles throughout my career, actuary, biostatistician, now data science, and it made intuitive sense to me, but I've never seen it articulated so clearly like that. Can you break that down for us? Yes, yeah, so, so this goes back, D.S. Eliot said this, and then a bunch of people kind of formalized it, but he, you know, he said, you know, where is the wisdom we've lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we lost in information? And then that got sort of related to when we started this data revolution, putting data in the bottom. So here's how I describe it, but people differ in how they describe it. Think of the data as just kind of like raw credit card information or like all the economic transactions that are going on or the website people visit. Information is kind of what data scientists do is turn data into information. They bundle it. You know, so they might say first time Trudeau voter or they might say, you know, soccer mom or they might say, you know, this is a 36 year old person in the second quintile of income. But you create these categories. Knowledge then is what might happen when you, I mean, you almost think of the input filters sometimes for the data source. And then knowledge is understanding causal or correlative relationships among that data. Now, these can be expressed as formal models, or they can just be sort of intuitive things. And then wisdom is knowing which model to use. So I always give my college roommate the money shot on this because he had like the ultimate kind of wisdom moment where he was working for Oracle and Iceland fell. This was after like we'd had the financial collapse in the United States. And so his assistant runs in. He's the treasurer of Oracle. And Oracle at the time has like $35, $50 billion in Europe. His assistant runs in and she says, Eric, Iceland just collapsed. And he said, you know, two models were in his head. One model was, you know, the financial market is a network and this connects to this. And if this node fails, that node is any sticking through it. And his other model was just like supply and demand. And he looked at her and said, Iceland is smaller than Fresno. Go back to work. <laughs> so, he had, so he had this information that Iceland fell. And there were two models. One is there can be a cascade through a network. The other is prices are affected by supply and demand. And he realized it's so small, I can just invoke the supply and demand model. 
model. He was right. You know, when you think about successful teams, successful organizations, successful governments, you know, what you want to have is you want to have a lot of data, a lot of information, a lot of knowledge in the form of models, and then hope like heck for wisdom. If you don't have a wide pyramid at the bottom, wisdom is going to be hard. Wisdom is going to be luck, is one of my friends like to say. So what's the importance of assumptions when you're in the modeling process and why are they important? Assumptions, well, like, you know, sort of like what to leave in, what to leave out, right? So look at it with John Miller on complex systems to get across the importance of assumptions. We, for a decade, had economics graduate students, right? Models of standing ovation. And in these models, they would, because they're economists, they think in terms of methodological individuals. So each person's an actor. So in their models, each person would sit down in the auditorium, they'd see the show, the show would have a quality, they would get a signal of the quality, they would stand if their signal was above some threshold, and then you'd stand if people around you were standing. And we would say, that's fantastic, you're so great, what a nice model. And we'd say, you know, we gave this to real people, otherwise known as non-economists, and their first assumption was that people went to the theater on dates or in groups. Do you go to the theater on dates? <laughs> it's like, the economists don't have dates, which is true, I guess. But then you, they're like, oh my God, that's right. And they realized assumption one they should have made is people don't go to the theater alone. And assumption two they should have made is like, your decision to stand is highly correlated with whether the person next either your date stands. So in some sense, the economists, because they've been taught like model individual actors, thinking in terms of their information, their incentives, that sort of stuff, their first two assumptions were completely wrong. So one of the things I think that I try to do when I try and teach people how to model when I teach my modeling course is to really get people out of their disciplinary boxes. So I've done stuff with like the New York Fed where I've said, okay, pretend you're a political scientist, how do you model this? Pretend you're an anthropologist, how do you model this? Pretend you're a social worker, how do you model this? And they suddenly make very different assumptions. So I think what philosophers call standpoint matters a lot. What's up, artists? Be sure to join the free Open Mastermind Slack community by going to bit.ly.com forward slash artists of data science. It's a great environment for us to talk all things data science, to learn together, to grow together. And I'll also keep you updated on the open bi-weekly office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check out the show on Instagram at the artists of data science. Follow us on Twitter at artists of data. Look forward to seeing you all there. What is this concept of many model thinking and what advantages does this thinking have over just regular old one model thinking? Yeah, so I mean, sometimes we've already kind of hinted at that, right? The simple thing is like, if I want to understand some process that's complex, by definition, that's, you know, you're talking about really difficult to explain, engineer, predict, and that it's going to be more complex than any one model can be. And so if I stick to a single model, it's going to be wrong. There's a famous quote by George Box, right, that all models are wrong. But if I have a variety of models, I'm sort of, you know, putting different lenses on it. And so what I can do is I'm less likely to sort of make a mistake. Now, I don't necessarily want to use the majority rule across those models, but I want to think of those models as giving me different explanations. So at the end of the book, I talk about income inequality, right? And you can think, well, what's causing this rise in income inequality? And one thing that's causing it is technology, right? There's more weightless goods. So if I made a really cool t-shirt and it became super popular, it would be very hard for me to ramp it up to make 40 million the next day. But if I make an app, you know, I can quickly replicate it, right? So weightless goods is one cause, right? The fact that we're all socially connected now and we can see what other people buy, that's another effect. It turns out assortative mating, right? That people are marrying a little bit later, like before you married someone because they were cute. Now you marry them because they're a biostatistician and make a lot of money and they're cute or something, right? And so you end up people of high income marry people with high income. That is a big effect. It turns out that people end up at the lower end of the distribution. It has nothing to do with any of those things. It has to do with a lot of sort of 
of compound, but you know, people think it's compounded disadvantage. There's bad schools, they're badly informed, they're not aware of opportunities, they don't know career choices to make, right? And so that kind of brings them in. If you look at sort of like why some you also look at other things, you look at CEO pay is also way up. And the models that get that really get it's almost like a political capture. And so what you realize is that somebody like Piketty can write a book called Capital that says, oh, all of income inequality is explained by rates of return on capital. You think, okay, fine, everybody can put that summer big book on their shelf, but that does not explain it, right? That is one of nine really good reasons why inequality is increasing. And then once you get that in your head, you realize a lot of things that happen in the social world and in climate and in ecologies are really multiple processes. And so there's a phrase people throw out something that's called complex system of systems. So why is obesity rising? Well, it's not just large cokes. It's not just lack of sidewalks. It's not just stress, right? It's not just the lack of physical work that people are now more office workers, but you know, it's all those things and some, and they mutually reinforce in some ways. And so if you really want to understand a complex phenomenon, you've got to look at it through lots of lenses. So you can go kind of metaphor land. Like if I have a house with one window, I'm not going to see the full yard. So in the model, think that you also devote a substantial ink to the difficulties of modeling human behavior. Yeah. So to kind of think about why that matters, look at it from a seemingly hotly debated topic right now, and that's the choice to wear a mask. Yeah. From rational, psychological, and sociology standpoint. Right. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I sort of use three sort of buckets for thinking about how to model, right? One is economists tend to assume people are rational, do some sort of cost benefit analysis. Sociologists, some people, like, economics is all about why we make the choices we do. Sociology is about why we don't have any choices, right? So sociology would say, like, I'm going to do what my identity tells me to do, right? And what my social group tells me to do. And then psychology is going to tell me, like, I'm going to suffer from certain biases or preconceptions or my insecurities or something like that, right? Or misunderstand probabilities and those sorts of things. Say, I don't know anybody with COVID. So then if I go, I mean, what's fascinating to me is so during this COVID thing, I'm living in my cottage, which is like 15 miles north of Ann Arbor on this little lake. It's a little cottage. And it's in a very conservative part of Michigan, even though it's 15 minutes from Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor is a very liberal part of Michigan. And in where my cottage is, most people are not wearing masks. In Ann Arbor, most people are wearing masks. And you can explain that. It's Some of it's tribal. I mean, a lot of it's sociological in that when you see everybody wearing masks, you feel like you probably should wear a mask. And when you see people not wearing masks, it emasculates you. Like, I might be the only guy wearing a mask a lot of stores I go into. And so then all of a sudden, like, you know, it's like, what am I, am I not a strong man? Am I not going to fight off this disease or something? And so when you think about it, what job does someone take? What career do they choose? How do they invest their money? How much do they save? Do they live a healthy lifestyle? Those choices are driven sometimes by psychological biases, sometimes by senses of cultural identity, and sometimes by, you know, rational choice. I think, you know, for me, you know, again, I grew up in this very rural area and I culturally am a completely different person than I was before, but I Ironically, that cultural change is, was driven mostly from rational choice, right? Because I was trained as a game theorist. And so things like not eating tons of food and being incredibly fat, not drinking yourself till you're totally drunk every night, not doing drugs, not driving your car really fast, not eating a bunch of potato salad, sleeping well, right? These sorts of things, like they're rational. Like as a scientist looked at the information and thought, here's how one lives a long, healthy life. Here's how one has a good marriage. Here's how one raises good kids. Some of this stuff is kind of straightforward. And so I was kind of driven by rational choice to having a very sort of different cultural approach than I might have growing up. I mean, my parents were wonderful people, but there were just things that like community I grew up in where I think people didn't live as healthy of lifestyles and had as healthy relationships maybe they could have. Really like that. That was really wonderful to hear. It reminded me of Meditations by Marcus Aurelius last night. And he had one line, one passage, and there's like three lines. He's like, do you have a mind? Yes. Well, then use it. All it has to do is reason. (laughs) So reading in the face of sociology is very hard, right? Because to push back on, you know, against my 
myself here is that like, you know, gift, there's a lot of economists is like, why do we give gift? Or why would you write a personal note when you can just email? Like my fourth grade teacher, she had the same birthday, you know, so for 45 years, she sent me birthday cards, like handwritten, right? Each one was a special moment, right? Mm-hmm. One of the 45. But yet economists would say inefficient. Yeah. You know, then you would tweet. So I want to get into some of the work you've done researching with diversity. Can you help us understand the difference between identity and cognitive diversity? Yeah. So there's differences and similarities. So when people talk about identity diversity, you mean kind of like above the iceberg or, you know, surface diversity, things like, you know, race, gender, age, sexual orientation, you know, who you are, right? When you think about cognitive diversity, you think about, you know, how do I think? How was I trained? You know, if you give me a problem, how do I go at it? And you can draw a bright line between those two in some sense, right? You can say like, you know, what I'm like on the outside, where I'm from matters less than if I'm an trained as an auto mechanic, data scientist, or heart surgeon. But what's intriguing is, and this is where I've really changed my opinions on this rather strongly over the last decade because of data scientists. Talk to people from Amazon, talk to people from Facebook, talk to people from Google, talk to people from Netflix. The movies we watch, the websites we visit, the books we read, the podcasts we watch, the people we follow is totally correlated with our identity. So every one of these companies can like nail my identity within a thin, thin tissue. And so if the input coming into my head is so identity driven, there's no way how I think isn't identity driven to some extent. I mean, the biographies I've read, the TV shows I watch, right? So, so it's the analogies I draw, right? There's just going to be a lot of how I think. Yet at the same time, you know, an economist thinks differently than a chemist, thinks differently than a biologist, thinks differently than a veterinarian. So what you want to think of, when I think of cognitive diversity, I think of, okay, let's go back to this sort of, you know, data information, knowledge, wisdom thing. How do I categorize things? You know, I mean, just how do I break things down into fundamental units? What do I think causes things, right? I mean, so what do I think people's motivations are, right? So if you talk to people in sociology or the humanities, oftentimes they think people are driven by power. If you talk to economists, they think people are driven by the pursuit of utility, you know, in some ways. And for some people, power may give utility or for some people, money may give utility. If you talk to philosophers, they might say, no, like, you know, especially like the two of us, they might look at us and say, these people are just driven by like ideas. <laughs> and so I guess when I think about this, I think a lot about how your ability to, you know, person's ability to contribute depends on having a really broad cognitive, you know, a really useful cognitive toolbox. There's a guy, Patrick Winston, who just passed away, who'd been the head of the AI lab at uh, MIT. And he used to speak at freshman orientation at MIT, told me the story, he's working on a project. And he would say, when you come to MIT, you're being trained to be an engineer, each class is going to teach you a set of tools. You're coming in with tremendous capacity, but you're large empty vessels. Okay, so you know some calculus. <laughs> You're largely empty vessels. What you want to do is you want to fill your toolbox with a really interesting collection of tools, right? Like super useful, with a great combination. You don't leave it all screwdrivers, you don't leave it all hammers. And then what you're going to go out in the world and do is do amazing things with those tools. Now, when he was saying that like in the 70s and 80s, engineers literally were using physical tools. Now it's like you're going out and you're saying, oh, I can, you know, do spectrum analysis. I can do, I can write a markup process. Process. I can do blah, 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 right? So you're literally going out with um, a set of tools. On this point, I want to push on this hard. Like people are saying, should I send my kid to college this fall? And a lot of stuff is going to be online. I'm like almost, you know, jumping up and down screaming like, oh my God, yes. Because like a lot of the stuff is going to be hybrid and online. But what's going to happen is these kids, these young adults are going to be exposed to all sorts of different like software, team-based problem solving things, like interactive things. If you went on the job market four years from now and someone says, oh, do you know how to do work in Loom? Do you know how to work in Ensemble? Do you know how to drink this? And you're like, no. 
I didn't take classes that semester. You're not going to get hired, right? I mean, like, so the odd thing is there's all these like incredibly useful, powerful tools that everybody's going to learn for online interactions. And boy, this is like the day you don't want to stay home because it's a really powerful set of tools. Excellent point. A lot to sink and I can't wait to yeah. go back and listen to that part of the uh, conversation there. Um, <laughs> so cognitive diversity, can I think of that as having many different mental models? And it reminds me of what you have in the model thinker. You've got like a yeah. bunch of different mathematical mental models that we can use in any variety of contexts. Um, am I thinking of that? Yeah, I think there's like, you know, mathematical models, mental models, programming skills, right? Interpretive skills, right? So cognitive diversity could be like, if I really know how to write a paragraph really, really well. One thing I learned from a friend of mine who's a comedian, there's a whole art to like writing jokes, right? Like you give it like a hundred times and like hard K sounds are funny. So think of any dirty word you can think of. It's got a hard K sound. <laughs> and so you want to end jokes with hard Ks, but there's just this whole art to writing that. So, and that skill, that's a cognitive tool, being able to sort of like write a sentence or write a narrative that works really well. Tim Harford, who has a podcast on, what is it, something mysterious or something unexpected, I don't know, get the name, but he has this incredible ability to craft narratives, right? To weave in and out stories. So, if you think of someone who's playing tennis, having a set of physical tools, like I can serve, I can return, I can volley, I can charge net, right? I think the same is true, like, of a mathematician. Like, you know, I can do Hamiltonians, I can do differential equations, I can do nonlinear dynamics. So, literally, you can think of it as, like, you know, formal tools you learn in an engineering class, concepts you understand, but you can also think of it as things that are somewhat maybe more tacit, like, I can write a good paragraph, right? I can do things like, one of the things important from a cognitive diversity standpoint is, is there, you know, some of these are innate skills, like, I can hold a lot of things in my head or not. And, and these are all things you can work on, right, to an extent, but no one can do everything. And one of the one of the big points I make now about cognitive diversity is, like, like last year, neuroscience, probably 60,000 papers written. In data science, there are probably 80,000 papers written. I don't know. We can look up the number. It's huge. No way anybody can know them all. You only know a tiny, tiny bit. And so just knowing different papers, knowing different insights, knowing different techniques, these are all cognitive diversity. And so that's a really key factor now that we're in a knowledge-based economy, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So the thing I always have my students think of is, suppose there are 52 things you can learn in college. If you learn 20 and I learn 15, you're smarter than me. But the odds that your 20 contain my 15, if we just randomly pick them, is practically zero. And so what you really want to put together good teams, exciting firms, productive societies, is people who are acquiring different ways of thinking, different understandings, different tools, right? Because then the whole is going to be so much more than the sum of the parts. When we're coming up with creative ideas, diversity tends to enlarge our set of possibilities, right? right? And when seeking the truth, diversity reduces the set of possibilities. How is it that it could do both? How could it both enlarge and reduce? Yeah, and this is one reason why I've been working in this space. I think that like diversity is so politically loaded that people just want to kind of say, diversity is better, it's magic dust, everything works better. And the processes which it operates is very different. So let's take creative ideas. So suppose I say, hey, we need uh, something different to cook for dinner tonight and here's what's in the fridge or we need to pick some other place because this is crowded. There's a wonderful phrase that my friend Stuart Kaufman came up with that Stephen Johnson popularized called the adjacent possible. So if I say, oh, we can't hold a conference in Calgary, where should we go? There's a set of cities you think it was adjacent to Calgary. And there's a set of cities I think it was adjacent to Cal Calgary. And those are going to be different. Our adjacent possibles are going to be different. And in the book, the example I give there is like, I say, Tom Hanks can't be in a movie. Who should we replace him with? No guys ever say Meryl Streep. All women say Meryl Streep, you know? 
Because <laughs> Meryl Streep can do anything, right? So Meryl Streep just isn't in a guise adjacent possible for Tom Hanks. When you're thinking about getting at the truth, what you're doing is you've got a set of things that might be true. And you know, so if you're reading a mystery or you're playing a game of Clue, it's a good example of getting at the truth. Like, you know, it could be Colonel Mustard. It could be Mrs. Peacock. It could be, you know, so you've got a set of five people you think it could be. Somebody else has different knowledge. They've got a different set of four they think it could be. And when you intersect them, you get a smaller set. So creativity is, here's the very simple definition. This creativity is the union of sets. Getting at the truth is the intersection of sets. If you have the same sets, you're no more creative. <laughs> you're no more better at getting at the truth. If you have different sets, you get a larger union and the smaller intersection. Incredibly simple. But this is, again, one reason I love that example, and I'm glad you asked that question, is this shows the incredible power of models to communicate. If you understand set theory, I can explain that to you in like five seconds. And you're like, oh my God, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's why models are awesome. Yeah, I mean, that was a very insightful, that last bit there. Uh, so in what ways does diversity make systems more productive? Yes, I mean, you know, so one is, again, you, you generate way more more ideas, but then you're also better at figuring out which ones are going to make sense and not make sense. We just talked about it. But the other thing that I think diversity does is when you think about solving problems or just coming up with new things, like when you just take union intersection, you're missing the fact that oftentimes breakthroughs come from recombining things, right? There's a famous case of say, Marty Weitzman who just passed away saying that like economic growth comes from recombining ideas in the theory of recombinant growth. And George Akerlof won a Nobel Prize said that's crazy. If that were the case, there'd be like chicken ice cream. And there is chicken ice cream. And the person who made it makes a lot of money. It sells to dogs and cats. Like go to a pet food store, you'll find chicken ice cream in the frozen container, right? And so the thing is, is that you can't even, you know, Akron, a Nobel Prize winner couldn't even come up with a bad example of uh, recombination. So the same is true in idea space. Look at the combustion engine. All the parts of a combustion engine or the steam engine were kind of like on the idea floor a long time before that came into being. So Brian Arthur has written just gorgeously on this, on the nature of technology. Most of the, like this iPhone in front of me, this computer in front of me is really hundreds of inventions recombined in interesting ways. And then the Pontiac Aztec is 100 really interesting things combined in a really bad way. <laughs> I was, uh, recently read a book by Austin Kleon, Steal Like an Artist. And yeah. that's very much the, the argument he was making. And then it's like, yeah, everything really is a remix. Right. Everything that's good, actually. Right? right. So do you consider data science, machine learning to be an art or purely a hard science? And why? Oh, I think both. You know, I think that there's, I think there's a sort of an entry cost that's pure science. Right. And then there's always this you know, outside of the box art kind of, uh, especially in terms of, I think, how one thinks about representing the data. I think there's a real art. And I think there's also a real art to, at this moment, thinking about how do you make it more transparent, right? This transparent AI strikes me as much more on the artistic end than the scientific end in a way. Because like art, you're trying to represent something complex in a way that people can get it, right? Which is funky. Even like outside of data science, just science in general, my wife and I were watching a documentary on Netflix called Babies. Uh, we have a eight-week-old baby upstairs. Hey, that's so cool. Yeah, so we were watching a little documentary about them and just the way some of these experiments were designed for them to test uh, the cognition of, of a newborn of an infant. I was like, dude, that is a really creative experiment, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, was this scientist in the crib? Is this... Uh... No, it's just all babies. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's just a brand new documentary. It's like oh, two cool. multi-part seasons. So what role does being creative and curious play in being successful as a data scientist, as, you know, a many model thinker? 
And how can someone who doesn't see themselves as creative uh, actually become creative? So Daniel Deermeyer, who's president of the University of Vanderbilt, a friend of mine, talked about how he, he found one way to be creative was to go to conferences you wouldn't necessarily go to, right? You know, each discipline, by definition, a discipline like looks in a narrow way, right? So if you go to a philosophy conference or go to a women's studies conference or go to a neuroscience conference or something like that, you really are just exposed to so many more things. One of the great opportunities I've had over the last you know, decade and a half is going out and giving a lot of talks on diversity and models. What's fascinating, if you go to a multinational firm or you go to like the NSA, they'll have maps of the world on them and they look at the world in very different ways. And it's, you just get, you just encounter all this cognitive diversity. And then some of it, you just think, well, that's how they have to think. And that's what they think is of what they do. And other things you think, whoa, that is so cool. I'm going to use it. You know, again, like your point still like an artist, but I just think that like, it's a lot easier to bump into ideas than it is to come up with them on your own. So people in cities, a lot of great work on this, right? People in cities are more creative, more innovation in cities. Why? You just bump into a lot more stuff. So I think for the chicken tikka masala burrito the other day, right? I'm like, oh boy, that's it. You know, that can't happen unless you both see the burrito and the chicken tikka masala. You're not going to think that up on your own. Growing up in California as a Indian male with an Indian mom. You probably had chicken tikka masala. Those mashups are quite common for us at our household. <laughs> but yeah, that's an excellent point. Just expose yourself to ideas, right? So I know there's a lot of up and coming data scientists listening to this and they just focus primarily on, you know, just on, on the textbooks, which is fine. You need to know your technical skills, but also just pick up a book, like a nonfiction book or a fiction book and just read something different. Yeah. And also just like watch other experts, you know, someone like Tony Hawk or, you know, some like, you know, Beyonce or, you know, sort of just attention, their attention to detail and how they go about things. Fascinating. You sort of thinking about they're solving, they're doing a completely different thing and how do they go about doing it and how might some of the things they're doing help me do the things I'm doing better. So last formal question before we jump into a quick lightning yeah. round. And that is what's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? Be true to the ideas, right? Just go back to the kind of achievement purpose thing, but just really think, find, you know, if you're in data science, you're probably really interested in ideas and you're interested in like, you like solving little puzzles and things like that. And the one thing I think that I'd like people to learn from me is that they could, is that yes, you want to do that, but you also, at some point, you also want to have the long view, right? And you want to think about like, is what I'm doing something when I sit back from this, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, am I going to think like, okay, wow, that was really worthwhile. I'm really proud of what I did. And that doesn't mean there's the continuum I talk about a lot when I talk to audiences, which I call the NASA Molex continuum, like once almost consecutively, they're talking NASA, which, you know, sends now hopefully people to Mars and then Molex, which makes off-white computer cables. And so at NASA, everybody had like pictures that their children had drawn and, or they had drawn of them like in a rocket as an astronaut. At Molex, nobody had pictures of themselves making computer cables. But yet you can't go to Mars if somebody doesn't make the computer cables. You can't live in a hospital. I can't run my computer. Like we need high quality computer cables. And so the thing is, and it sounds like a bad monster.com ad, but the thing is, is that there's a way, you know, in some sense, I, I came with that experience with as much or more respect with the people at Molex than at NASA because they were bringing it every day and they had a deep, deep commitment to quality control and they managed especially well and they were wonderful people and they led good lives and they did a lot of stuff in their community and their sense of what they were doing was contributing something that was of central importance to the, everything working well and doing it the best they can and in developing those habits to make good computer cables, those were habits that would carry over their lives and the lives of the people they were with, which is great. Again, it doesn't have to be that you're sending people to Mars. You can make computer cables, but you want to do it in a way that when you're done with it, right, or as, as 
you moved on to the next thing that you feel like, well, that was, I'm really proud of what I did and how I did it and its impact on the world. Because look, I'm totally bummed with my computer game over Oh, I dig it. That's like, you know, it's exercise your mastery and turn whatever it is you're doing, just have that craftsman attitude towards it and just be the best that you possibly can be at it, right? right. And be aware that you want the thing you're working on being something that's a force for good in the world, right? So jumping into a quick lightning round, if you could meet any historical figure, who would it be? Because of recent events, I think it'd probably be, you know, Frederick Douglass. Interesting to think about, like, you know, because he was so instrumental in all the Reconstruction stuff. I guess he'd be, he'd be fascinating. So what do you believe that other people people think is crazy. That hard work makes you really happy. If you could have a billboard anywhere, what would you put on it? I put a huge picture of my dog that I rescued, Oda, and say, no, really, she's sweet to us. <laughs> she's not sweet to but People are like, how can this nice family have such a horrible dog? And she's actually really sweet to us. What's an academic topic outside of data science that you think every data scientist should spend some time researching? Wow. So I th- you, know, I, you just gave these questions before, and this is one that I really struggled with a lot. I mean, I guess I would say graphic design a little bit, right? Not because it's a Steve Jobs thing, but just I think that there's a lot to be gained there on representation. Not not the first person to say that. So yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. So what's the number one book, fiction or nonfiction, that you would recommend our audience read? What was your most impactful takeaway from it? Oh, I've heard, I would say Flatland by Edwin Abbott, because it's short. I know people don't like to read long books. If you haven't read it, it's about this A square who lives in a completely flat existence. And then one day it meets this guy, like a sphere who comes through, who's like a quaint and then a widening circle and he gets to see in higher dimensions. And I think it's fabulous. It's sort of the inverse of data science because you're taking a high dimensional world and turning it into flat land because everything is projected in two dimensions. I just think that it's a book that short, fascinating, succinctly written. I think data scientists find it really fun if you haven't encountered it. And it's free. (laughs) I find that that really correlates with uh, getting young people to read it. I'll definitely have to check that one out. So if we could somehow get a magic telephone that allowed you to contact 18-year-old Scott, what would you tell him? Really, this is your hair. I mean, at that age, I had so much hair. It would be shocking, I think, to me. I think the thing for me would would probably say, just, you know, relax. It's going to be fine. I mean, I think that I'm pretty calm relaxed person, but I just would have said, all good. What's the best advice you have ever received? Ironically, you think it would be, I'd just go back to sort of the achievement purpose thing, but it's uh, Leo Hurwitz and Stan Ryder who were, Leo wasn't officially one of my advisors, but they were two older economists who had sort of began their work in the 50s on, you know, what works better, markets or central planning at a time when that was still really, you know, sort of like in the air, like, you know, what's what's going to work best? And they proved all these theorems sort of showing that markets were more informationally efficient. And Leo at one point written this paper with this guy, David Schmeidler, and Leo had said to me, I'm going to give you a really good piece of advice is that if you can't solve something, go ask someone smarter than you, <laughs> you know, in that area, right? Like, don't pound your head against Like, If there's an expert in the area, and he told a story then about going and asking von Neumann a question, right, at one point, right, because von Neumann was somewhere and just like moved him like six months ahead. So it was kind of like, don't be afraid to go ask an expert a question. What was great about that advice is later on in my life, I had these amazing opportunities to meet, interact in meaningful ways with people like Ken Arrow, John Holland, Eleanor Ostrom, you know, all these people like Murray Gelman, you know, Nobel prize winners, famous academics. And like from, and it's easy because the academy is kind of like Hollywood, like, well, there's this famous person. And what Leo's advice was so useful to me and Stan's advice was that if you really care about something and you want to understand it and you have the opportunity to ask someone or be near someone who can help you with that, ask them the technical question. You know, I, I ran into John Holland the first time, you know, I was still a grad student. He's at Michigan, invented genetic algorithms. John later became a great friend and hired me at 
Michigan, like 30 seconds after meeting him, I'm like, I said, John, like, to what extent can evolution be Bayesian? <laughs> he gave me like a 40 minute answer. It was fantastic, right? And without Leo's advice, I never would have asked that question. It was fabulous advice. You know, just get right to the, you know, these experts are experts for a reason. Go right in there, you know, get right in the craw with them. What motivates you? This amazing opportunity. I mean, like my, I had wonderful parents. I grew up next door to my sibling, my cousins, right? So my dad and his brother lived next door. My, and my grandpa lived across the street. We ran a gas station on a lake in rural Michigan. They were high school teachers. My dad wore a suit and tie every day to teach high school because he could wear a suit and tie, didn't have to do physical labor. My grandfather, you know, dropped out of school at 13 to run the family farm. Wasn't, I mean, he could read, but he wasn't, you couldn't, he never learned how to write cursive. And so I feel so blessed to have come from that family, but also to have grown up in the state of Michigan where I'm back now, trying to give back a little bit that University of Michigan is one of the great higher institutions of higher learning in the whole world, probably certainly one of the three or four best public universities in the entire world. And I just randomly happened to grow up in a really good family, randomly happened to be in the state with this incredible public university, which then propelled me on to, you know, other great universities and opportunities and to be in a lot of rooms. And anytime I'm in a room that I think where I'm going to share ideas, learn ideas, this room, I think is an old Irish folk song. It's a long way from Claire to here in Claire, Ireland, but I always thought it was Claire, Michigan, which is a small town Michigan. I always think that of the same thing. It's a long way from Yankee Springs to here. And I've had this unbelievable opportunity and also blessed, you know, curious minds, lack of coordination, like just stuff, but, you know, some tools, some capacities. I think that through most of human existence, most people did not have opportunity. It's an amazing thing. Definitely, definitely. So what song do you currently have on repeat you know, it, it switches off. Right now, it's uh, the Eagles' peaceful, easy feeling because we're just trying to just recognize that this is an amazing moment to rekindle our family. My sons are getting me to take it off, though. <laughs> the, uh, they're tired of the Eagles. And uh, I had Fathers and Sons by Cat Stevens on there, but they're like, okay, bit treacly here, buddy. You know, I, get, I have two sons who are much larger. You kind of want your kids to be, you know, taller, smarter, kinder, better looking than you are, better well-mannered and stuff. And, and then when that happens, you're happy about it. But still, the fact that they have better taste in music, I just can't stand. I really have this in my family. I'm in a household with three people with very good taste in music. And look, I mean, I grew up in Bob Seger Journeyland, you know, it was like, so whatever I have on repeat is getting taken off repeat, you know, so... Uh, as long as you're listening to what you like, <laughs> it's, it's good taste. So yeah, what's like, next? If I, on, if I put on like Counting Crows, it just gets like, or the Bodines or Bob Seger or Journey. I live for a world where I could have something on repeat. That's like an unfair. <laughs> what's next on the horizon for you? Any new projects? Any new books? You know, I just moved this last year to the business school at Michigan, primarily because I felt that the discussion around diversity within the arts and sciences school had taken such a sort of normative justice perspective, which is important, but it's not where my strengths lie. And I feel like business and policy schools are really trying to think about how do we move this forward. And so what I'm working on now, what I'm really trying to think about now, I'm launching a new journal with Jessica Flack and Jeff Mulgan and some other people called Collective Intelligence. We're really trying to, in some sense, create collective intelligence as a thing like machine learning, like complex systems. And the particular spin that I'm interested in is to what extent can institutions, markets, hierarchies, democracies, self-organization, and algorithms enable collective intelligence, let the whole do things that individuals can't do. And that gets what, that's why one reason I'm so excited about being on this podcast is this is the space you're playing in, right? Like how do we use data science to like make us smarter? Data science is in a way a form of collective intelligence, but there are many. How do we link people and machine learning and all this stuff to really allow us to do great things. And the people at the forefront of this, like Tom Malone and MIT, 
Jessica Flack at Santa Fe, Elaine Landemore, Yale. Like I wrote a paper with Elaine Landemore and like sort of like, you know, collective intelligence and political philosophy. I only understand about a third of it, <laughs> but uh, I'm super excited about it. And so that's kind of where I'm going next. And that jives with, intersects with, overlays with uh, models and the diversity stuff. So it's something I feel like I can probably add something to, although I'm not sure much. And the other thing I'm working on is like just, you know, I've got one kid who's a sophomore in college, one who's a freshman, or I guess now they're juniors and sophomores. One's in data science and one is in art. And so I'm just really trying to personally adjust to the fact that they're out of my hands at this point, which is scary, but also to try and learn from them and enjoy them and help them. And where can people find your books and how can they connect with you online? I'm on like Twitter and stuff like at Scotty Page. I'm just Scotty Page at Gmail or S Page at umich.edu. But if you just Google me, you know, academics are totally open and out there. Next week, I'm on vacation. So do it uh, after July 10th. Otherwise, I'm around. Dr. Page, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. I really, really appreciate you coming on and sharing so much insight and wisdom. Thank you. No problem. It's great fun. Thanks. 